0: Uh, Two years ago, there was a guy in California named Lauren Kreitzer who was um, struggling financially. His career as a carpenter had ended with a car accident, and so he was just basically uh, just barely scraping by, just barely surviving. And then one day he was watching Antique Roadshow, and he saw that they were appraising a blanket, Um, and it looked just like a blanket he had in his house, but when they appraised it, they said that this blanket was worth $500,000. And so, so he went and dusted off this blanket that had been laying around at his place, and he thought, i got to take this to auction. Maybe I can do pretty well with this. And so he brought it to auction thinking maybe he could get a few thousand bucks or something. If that other one was worth so much, maybe he could get at least something, and that could maybe help him get by for a couple of months. But he brought it to auction, and, and that day at the auction it sold for $1.5 million dollars. Um, it was a, a Navajo blanket. it was in in good shape, but but they had not treated it like it was a precious heirloom. There was actually a time where his grandmother laid it out for the cat to have its babies on um, and so, so they didn 't realize the value of this thing, but then once he brought it in and, and sold it all of a sudden, cashing in that value, he realized what a massive treasure it was. that thing that had been there all along massively impacted his life once he realized its worth and its value and and we as Christians are people who are in need of constant reminders of the value and the worth of Christ. Because at times, becoming a Christian can become something that we just get used to. It, where Jesus can become for us almost like that thing that's just sort of always been around, and his impact on our lives can be diminished. We, our, our joy in him can shrink because we forget about his worth. But we get together Sunday after Sunday to, to look again and again at Jesus, because it's in grasping more of who he is and what he's done, grasping more of his love for us, that we're strengthened and changed. In fact, if you look at Ephesians chapter 3, um, verses 14 through 19, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being." So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he says that as we start to grasp who Christ is and we start to grasp his love, that's how we're filled with the fullness of God. That's how we're strengthened, how we're rooted, how we're grounded it's by, by knowing Christ and knowing his love. And so the hope today is that you'll be able to say, like that guy who sold the blanket, I can't believe that that thing was mine all along. And, and your faith will be refreshed and you'll leave with more joy than you came in with. Or maybe today's the day you'll say, man, I want that. I want that to be mine, but it's not mine right now. And maybe today will be the day that you receive Christ by faith and realize what an immense treasure he is. And the passage that we'll look at today, it talks about what God is like, and it talks about what he's done for us in Christ, and the hope is that we'd all leave here with more joy because of the treasure that we have in Jesus. And now, if you remember where we are in in the story, there was a few weeks ago, we looked at the passage where an old priest named Zechariah was serving in the holy place in the temple, and much to his surprise, an angel showed up in there, which was frightening for him, And and this angel Gabriel told Zechariah that he and his also-aged wife Elizabeth were going to be having a son, one who would come to prepare the way for the Lord. And when Zechariah first hears this news, he doesn't believe. He doesn't believe what the angel has to say. He says, how will I know these things are true? He responds with doubt. And so the angel allows Zechariah to receive some of the discipline of, of God for his disbelief. And he makes Zechariah unable to speak and maybe unable to hear uh, until his son, John, is born. And then after meeting with Zechariah, the angel heads over to Nazareth and and lets the virgin girl named Mary know that she'll also be having a miraculous baby, um, that her baby will be the the son of God. And and Mary hears this news, and, and she asks some questions like we would expect her to, but she believes. So Zechariah questioned with doubt and disbelief. She questioned with faith. And then Mary and Elizabeth met, and when they met, that baby that was in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy because his whole job was to, to point the way to Jesus Christ who was coming, and those two babies in proximity with one another, John the Baptist, is, is jumping for joy knowing that that Jesus is there. And then after that meeting, Mary sings a song about how God has come to her in her humility and is giving her this child. And so the whole story is the story of God acting, God showing his grace, and people responding with joy. And today the scene shifts back to Zechariah and Elizabeth, about nine months after that encounter in the temple, and and this is what happened. Luke 1, verse 57, it says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So Zechariah names his child John just as the angel commanded him. Now, earlier in this chapter, it said that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and they were blameless. They were holy people, but he sinfully doubted God's word when he heard it. And so God sent that discipline into his life. He made his life very uncomfortable for those nine months. And and this will happen to faithful Christians. This will happen to all of us, where we stray at times, we, we wander, but God is a good father. So he administers some kind of discipline to bring us back and to straighten us out. And he'll do that in all kinds of ways. And I think there are a couple of errors that we'll make about that. One error is that we'll we'll think that all bad things that come into our lives and all hard things that are in our lives must be the discipline of the Lord. That there must be some secret sin or some hidden sin in us, and that's just not always the case. The message of the book of Job is that that, that's not the case. That, That not all bad things that happen in our lives are God responding to sin that's in our lives. But then the other mistake that we can make is that we believe that none of the hard things are his discipline. But what this teaches us here is that God does allow some hardship into the lives of his children as discipline to, to bring us back to him. And when that, dis, that hardship comes into our lives, we'll do one of two things. On the one hand, we will uh, accuse God of treating us unfairly, or we will accuse ourselves We'll actually agree with what God is is saying and what God's demonstrating to us. And we'll say, I was wrong. And we'll run back to God in, in repentance and in faith. We either run away from God in pride and disobedience when that discipline comes into our lives, or we run back to him. And look how Zechariah has grown. I mean, before he argued with God's word, God made life difficult, um, and, and it was legitimately hard for him, and, and you would think that he had a legitimate excuse. I mean, he could be thinking in his mind, of course I didn't believe that. I'm like 90, and she's 90. I mean, who has kids at that age? How could you expect me to believe? But Zechariah, the way that he responds to this is not with, a, with any self-pity. He doesn't shake his fist at God. He doesn't accuse God of doing wrong. He blesses God. He praises God. He responds with real repentance and real faith. He accepts the discipline of God, and he believes and obeys, and in a second we'll see that he sings God's praise. And you see that his obedience is, is absolute here. When it's time to name his baby, even though he isn't following convention and giving that baby a family name, uh, even though the whole community thinks it's really weird that he's naming this kid John when there's nobody in his family named John, um, Zechariah just says his name is John. Notice that he doesn't say, you know, I'm thinking of naming him John. He doesn't say, you know, I want to keep the name Zechariah in the family, but the angel said, name him John. So I'm just kind of weighing my options here, trying to decide what to do. He didn't decide if he was going to obey God, he just obeyed him. Because Zechariah was not trying to decide here whether he would believe, he actually believed. He gets another chance here to be faithful, and he is faithful. And so this time around, there's no pushing back on God. There's just obedience. Zechariah says, I learned my lesson. I'm going to go with God's word without reservation, and we're going to call this kid John. In fact, the way he answers their question, what are you going to name him? He basically says, his name's already John. Like, this is already a done deal. He's recognizing God's complete authority over his son. And this is just the way it works, that someone who names something has authority over that thing. You see it in the book of Genesis, for example, where God uh, gives Adam authority over all the animals, and the first thing he tells him to do is to name them. Um, so, so having that authority, Adam's able to call those things by their name. Uh, also, if you have a nickname— there's a pretty good chance that you got that from someone who had some kind of authority way back. Either your parents called you that or somebody who was kind of high up on the social ladder in your school called you that and the reason that nickname stuck is because someone with authority named you. And, and so here Zechariah when it's time to name his son says, I actually don't even have the authority here. That, that someone above my pay grade has already named my son and I'm not pushing back on him anymore. His name is already John. So so now there's faith where there was doubt. There's obedience where before there was pushback. There's a righteous person receiving the discipline of the Lord and changing. This is important for us to, to see. We shouldn't believe that people never change. It, it is possible for people to change. People who are infused with the gospel can change well into old age. Old dogs do, new, do learn new tricks in the kingdom of God. And so Zechariah here is, is different, and God has shown himself to be a good father. He, he works to bring Zechariah back to that place of faith and obedience through some gentle discipline, and in the same way, he works in our lives to bring us to a place of faith and obedience. God is a good father who's actively working to cultivate us and to change us into children that reflect his character more and more as the years go on. He isn't content for us to be like old Zechariah, where we push back on God's commands, where we waver when we hear what he says. God doesn't want us to be people who hear his word and then weigh our options and decide whether we're going to believe or whether we're going to obey. He doesn't want us to live in a way where we select which parts of his word we obey. He doesn't want to command us and then have us weigh our options. Jesus is not content to just get a spot at the table in our lives. He's not content just to have his voice heard among many other voices. Jesus' voice is the voice that raises the dead. His is the voice that we hear and believe and obey. It's not the voice that we consult. There's a big difference between a Lord and a life coach. There's a big difference between a God and a consultant. We don't accept Jesus as buddy and life coach. We accept him as Lord and Savior. And, and for Zechariah here, there's this newly refreshed faith that fully submitted to God's authority, which didn't leave any room for weighing options when God commanded. Now we hear that and we think, man, that would just be such a joyless and stuffy way to live. We just have to follow all these commands, do all these things. I mean, surely those commands will limit us. Surely they're going to restrict us. We won't be able to do everything we want if we live this life in obedience to Jesus. And Jesus acknowledged as much. He said this in Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So yeah, the way of following Jesus is hard. And the gate is narrow. It does restrict. But look at what else he says. He says it leads to life. In following Jesus, it's not rules for rules sake or sacrifice for sacrifices sake. It, it all leads to life. It's like we have to crawl through a very narrow tunnel to get to a very broad valley but it does lead to that broad valley. And those who really know Christ and really know who, who he is and, and all of his benefits to us don't feel crushed by this. They feel liberated by it. In some ways, a walk with Jesus is like a good marriage where we've probably all known someone like, where we had like, a group of guys, we all hung out, and then all of a sudden that one guy meets somebody, and all of a sudden you just don't see him anymore. Because he's always hanging out with her. And we used to go bowling on Thursday nights, but now that guy doesn't come to bowling. It's like he's not allowed to anymore because he's spending time with her. And and on the outside, everybody's just kind of making fun of him. Like, look at this guy who gave up all of his freedom. You know, he just, he doesn't get to live anymore. He doesn't get any joy anymore. But if it's a good marriage on the inside, that guy's going, no, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Like, this is way better than bowling with y'all. Like, this, this is not, this is a better deal. I'm actually glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, I'm giving up some stuff, but I'm getting some stuff that's way, way better. Like, she is so much better than all of you. And, and so on the outside, we look at it and say, look at that guy giving up all his freedom. On the inside, he's going, this is exactly how I want to live. This is so much better. That, that yeah, in some ways it is a, a narrow gate, but it leads to life. And when we live for Christ, we do give up a lot to follow him. And from the outside, that can look horribly restrictive and horribly limiting. But from the inside, if we really know him, we can say, this is actually really living. This is what I was made for. And yeah, it's, it's hard. And yeah, we're, we're tempted. And, and yeah, we want to take the wide and easy way sometimes. But we know that this narrow way does lead to life. And so old Zechariah, now corrected and living in faith and obedience again, doesn't whine about giving up his freedom In fact, the next thing that he does is he sings. And it's worth noting here that that we're still in the first chapter of Luke, and we're already coming up on the second song in this story. Uh, People who are making sacrifices and giving up their freedoms to be part of the story that God is telling, sing about it. I mean, Mary will suffer the scorn of being an unwed teenage mom, but God is at work, so she sings. Zechariah has been disciplined into faith and obedience, but he found the way that leads to life, so he sings. And these people are singing, even though circumstances around them are really bad. Dr. Luke was careful to point out back in verse 5 that these were the days of King Herod. These were dark and hard days. These were days with no freedom, days with wicked rulers, the world was dark, there was Roman tyranny, there was Roman idolatry as the state religion. Even within the limited Judaism that they were allowed to practice, there was apostasy. So, so you look around, and it was like everything was bad, but as dark as those days were, God was on the move. And it was the work of God that caused his people to sing. And so for us, if we look around, and it seems like politics are bad, and Church is bad, and the future looks dark, and circumstances are troubling. None of that is an excuse for us to be people who can't sing for joy. In fact, in our culture that's increasingly hostile to the faith, and maybe in your school where none of the other kids want anything to do with Jesus or his ways, one of the best things that we can do is live with the joy in God despite all the darkness, Despite the things that people who don't know the, know the joy of Jesus are saying about us, the, despite the hardships, despite the darkness out there, God's still giving a joy to his people. And it's a joy that can endure despite threats from the outside. You see it in the New Testament. It's the kind of joy where people are thrown in prison and then they're singing out in the middle of the night. God gives this joy that can belly laugh at, at fear when everybody else is afraid. And it's not a phony joy that doesn't ever lament or that doesn't ever acknowledge problems, but it's a confidence in God in the midst of all those problems. And you see there's like a community of joy that's forming here. This whole community comes around Elizabeth and they're rejoicing at the work God's doing. They know that this work must be significant. They know that a baby conceived in old age must mean that something big is at hand, that they're standing to quote Tolkien at the turning of the tide. That things are going to change, that God is alive, that God is at work, and so you have this little community of joy that's formed. And I think for us, one of the most compelling aspects of our testimony to the reality of Christ, to the world around us, is is when God works to make us a city of joy in the middle of a city of fear. That, that there's this this new city, the city of God, that's always growing up among the cities of, of men. And, and here's this group of people who know Jesus and who have real problems and real things to lament about, but also can have real joy. And when all the world around us is afraid, when everybody else looks at, at politics and looks at corruption and looks to the future and it just all seems dark, still to be able to have joy because we know God is on the move is a powerful testimony to the reality of Christ. So let's take this in. Let's, let's take a minute to revel in all of the, the things about Christ that Zechariah is reveling in so that we can realize the great treasure that we have in Christ and, and walk away today saying, man, I, it's almost like I didn't realize how good this thing was that I had. So look at what he sings about. Verse 67, it says, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the God of Israel, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited And redeemed his people. So the first thing he's singing about here is that God visits his people. And and this doesn't just mean that God has stopped by, but it means that God has intervened. When when God showed up and they called it a visitation in Israel, it always led to God changing history. Like you see the visitation of God where he comes down in the burning bush in Exodus, and that leads to everything changing. That, That leads to the rescue of his people. And Zechariah is singing because. God has visited again. This is an important element of Christianity, that there, there's a very big difference between, between a religion that's just trying to get some nice sentimental feelings of religion and, and to, to sing some nice songs that make us feel good, that kind of helps us escape from reality. And a Christianity that says we're actually worshiping a real God who really showed up at time and space, who really exists, who really made all things, and is really still at work. You know, our goal as a church when we gather together is not to try to be, you know, the church of Kanye, where, where we get together and experience some nice vibes, and, and everybody's happy, and we're, we're having a good time. We're getting together to, to be happy because we're being reminded of God's visitation. Because we're worshiping the real God who has really worked in time and space in real ways in history. Christianity is not the way that we escape from reality, but it's gathering together to worship the God who made reality and who acted in reality. We worship a Jesus who really came. We worship a Jesus who really lived in a real body and who really died on a real cross in a real place. And then he was buried in a real tomb, and then he really bodily rose from that grave. We're not just here for for the good feelings, but we're here to celebrate the reality and be reminded of that reality and to be reminded that one day he's really going to return. He's going to make all things new and leave us with him on this beautiful, really renewed, real planet. We're actually celebrating real things when we celebrate Christ. Peter said this. this is second Peter chapter one, verse sixteen. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's saying, this is not just a a myth or a fairy tale that we're, we're following here. God acts in history. God really shows up. And when he does, he shapes history. He says, these aren't just nice stories. We actually saw Jesus. And Peter recounts that time that they were with him up on the mountain. Jesus was transfigured in front of them. They heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my son. And and so he says, this is real stuff. And because we do, we live for him by faith. Christians aren't people who just gather to soak up the fields and then scatter to, to try to obey some rules. But we're people who have come to know the God who made all things and entered into creation in Jesus. We're here to worship him and to hear his sure word, and then to leave to spread that message and to strive to live by faith and to love our neighbors, not just in spiritual ways or sentimental ways, but in real, tangible ways in this real world that God made. We haven't followed fairy tales, but God visits his people. So Zechariah is singing about that, but notice in verse 68, it says that he visited and redeemed. So to talk like this for all of the Jews who heard this originally, it would have brought to their mind immediately stories of the Exodus. I In mean, Exodus 6, six, God says this, he says, say, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So God is a redeeming God, and to redeem someone is to, to purchase that person. Usually this is a word that's used to, to mean purchasing someone out of slavery and then freeing them. And all throughout the ministry of Jesus, there are comparisons to the exodus that are made. When God came to purchase his people out of slavery and then to, to bring them out into the promised land to free them to worship him. Jesus came to be the true and better exodus, to to pay the price the justed demanded, and then to make us people who are free to serve him. So Zechariah here is singing about the fact that God is so devoted to his people that he redeems them. There's a a story of a boy who um, made a model battleship. He, he saved up his money to, to purchase this model and then went into the store and kind of dumped his coins all over the table and bought this kit, and then he brought it home, and, and he started meticulously following all the directions, and he put the whole thing together perfectly. He painted his name on the bottom of it. He sealed the whole thing up because a model can't just, you know, sit on a shelf forever. You got to try it out. So, so he built this thing, and then he brought it outside, and he, he put it down in a drainage ditch at the bottom of his backyard, and this thing was floating, it was staying upright, it was doing just what he wanted it to do, but he had underestimated the strength of, of the current that day. And so the ship started floating away from him, and he kind of ran along the side to try to keep up with it, but pretty soon he wasn't able to keep up with it anymore, and, and he saw that it was getting farther and farther ahead of him, and then eventually it slipped into a culvert underneath a road, and, and he never saw it again. So obviously discouraged, he goes home and he starts you know, saving up his coins again so he can buy another one. And then, then one day he walks into the shop that sells these models and in the glass display case is his boat. And it's got his name painted on the bottom of it. So he talks to the owner of the shop and says, hey, can I, can I have my boat back? And the owner says, no, actually, that's mine. Um, I, it, that's for sale. And there was an exorbitant price on it because that boat was so well built um, and, and this boy couldn't afford it. So, so he went home, and he started selling off some stuff and doing some chores, and then he came back into that shop with enough money to buy that boat, poured everything out on the counter, and, and brought that boat home. And this time he brought it home and just stuck it on his shelf, and his mom came in and said, oh, you got your boat back. And he said, yeah, that, that boat is twice mine, because I made it and I bought it. And as Christians, we are people who are, are possessed by a God That has made us twice his. Because not only did he make us. But when we had been sold into slavery to sin. God came and he bought us. And he bought us at great cost to himself. At the the cost of the death of his son. God redeems. He, He buys his people back out of slavery and frees them. And how much does that reality bring comfort to us? When we wonder if he loves us because our circumstances are so hard, or or if it seems like it's been a while since he's really answered a a prayer in a way that I could point to and say, yes, that's clearly an answer to prayer, or we wonder if this is a God who cares for us, he loved us enough to make us and to buy us back from our cruel owner. So his love for us doesn't have to be in doubt. It's a love that can give us real joy, and it could be something that's worth singing about. And we've had that all along. How strange it is that that becomes commonplace to us. And he goes on, and he keeps singing, verse 69, and he says, And God has raised up a, verse of, or a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So he says that, that God is raising up this horn of salvation in David's line. And, and a horn was used as a symbol of strength and honor and dominion. You know, an animal with horns, like a bull, was a strong animal. And they would use those horns in their defense. And so, so he's saying here that, that Jesus is that, that horn of defense. Jesus is that strong one that God is, is raising up in our day. And he says that he's doing exactly what he said he would do way back when he was speaking to the fathers. In fact, he's probably referring to Psalm 132 here. Listen to what had been written uh, long before these days of Zechariah. Psalm 132, verse 11, it says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So God had said that there would be a strong one who would come from David's line and would sit on the throne, and Zechariah is singing because God is keeping his word. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. God is completely faithful, and compare the faithfulness of this God to every other God that we're tempted to serve. I mean, we're all tempted to serve something else. We all have something that that we tend to make ultimate in our lives, but all of those gods lie to us. All of those gods make promises that they never end up keeping. So, for example, if you take the god money, one that we're often tempted to serve, it makes promises. It says that if you follow me, if you serve me, if you get enough of me, then you'll find security. Then you'll find rest. Then you'll have a future. But when we give in to that temptation, and even if we get some, we find out that we still have fears, in fact, it can create more fears where we're wondering, what happens if I lose this? And it seems like we just have to pursue more and more and more. It's never enough. You know, the oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller, who was you know, a billionaire in, in today's money, was once asked, how much is enough? And his response was, one more dollar. It's always more that we want, that, that it never satisfies. You know That God says, come to me and I will give you rest, and it never, ever does. But Zechariah is singing, and we sing, because God always delivers. Yeah, he operates on a different timeline than we do. From our perspective, we often cry out, how long, O Lord? But there will come a day when we'll look back at a long list of perfectly kept promises without anything left over. That God is a God who, in the end, will have fulfilled every promise that he's made so we can trust him. We can push in all of our chips. We can go all in on him. We can trust him with our hearts and with our hopes, with our emotions, with our lives. And, and there will be days that we're tempted to doubt because it seems like he takes so long to, to fulfill some of these promises. But really, where else are we going to go? Who can keep his word like our God can? What's a better alternative? He's faithful. He's faithful. So Zechariah is singing about the faithfulness of God that that he sees in the coming of Jesus. And now it's worth noting here that so far, Zechariah is not even singing about his own baby, which is is a little bit strange, but he kind of recognizes what God's doing here. He's singing about Mary's baby, Jesus. Um, Now we would probably never do that. I've gotten to visit a lot of people up at Strong right after they have a baby, but there's never been a conversation where they're holding their baby and saying, man, this baby is really amazing. This baby is beautiful. But if you want to see an awesome baby, Right down the hall. I'm telling you, like, that one, that one's amazing. No, everybody holds their baby and they say, this baby is the best baby of all the babies. Like, there, there's no other baby. This is the one. But Zechariah knows that there's a greater one who's here. That, that there is a, a greater child and that even though he surely got huge joy in the birth of his son, John, how much more joy is there that he has in, in the birth of Jesus, the one who's come to save his people from their sins. The one that John would point to. In fact, later on when John grows up, he would point to Jesus and he would say, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in another place, he points to Jesus and says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so even here, Zechariah knows the supremacy of Christ even over his own son, and he's celebrating it. It's good news when Jesus comes. It's good news that, that God is so merciful. Look at verses 71 and 72. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us To show the mercy promised to our fathers. Now, God's mercy is mentioned a few times in this chapter alone. And and if you're a Christian here, there's no doubt that you would say that God is a merciful God. And we we talk often about God being a God of grace and mercy. And and a helpful distinction is that God's grace is when He gives us something that we don't deserve, God's mercy is when He doesn't give us what we, we do deserve. And I think the lines between those two are actually blurred a little bit more, the way Scripture uses those terms. But, but we do all acknowledge as Christians that we have a God who's merciful, that God's a God who gives us far better than we deserve. And we say we believe that, but often it seems like functionally we don't. And there's some subtle ways that we can live, like, in my relationship with God, I'm the merciful one, and I'm giving God better than he deserves, So, for example, we'll come to believe in Christ, and we'll start serving him. We'll start sharing with others for him. We'll make sacrifices for him, and we'll start to think, you know, I'm a really good person for doing all this. I'm kind of going above and beyond. We'll compare ourselves to other people and say, man, I'm I'm actually doing God some significant favors here. I deserve more credit than I'm getting for this. I, I endure a lot for God. I've shown God a lot of mercy. I'm giving him a little bit better than, than he deserves. Or sometimes we'll hear from someone who left the faith and they'll say, man, I did so much for God and he did so little for me. I was the merciful one. We have this idea that we volunteer to, to help him out and his job is to appropriately appreciate all of his volunteers. We, we tend to have a very big me, little God theology where we say, it's nice of me to do so much for God. But that's the polar opposite of how people received Christ in their day. They looked at what God was doing, they say, he is so merciful. Everything he does for us is so much better than we deserve. The fact that he would intervene at all, and that he would rescue us at all, especially at the price of the life of his own son, what kind of amazing mercy is that? And it's really only when we start to grasp that reality that we're transformed by our faith. And and millions throughout history have been transformed by Christianity because they believed that God is a God who saved a wretch like me. And if we really believe that, it, it has to change us. In fact, that's what Zechariah sings next, verse 72. He says, and to remember his holy covenant... The oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So, God, when he redeems, always redeems from something and to something. He freed people from Egypt so that they could serve him without fear in the promised land. And here Zechariah is saying that he frees us from sin so that we could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. That that's what God does when he saves a person, when he forgives a person, he does so that we can serve him with holy lives. Now, we believe that God's forgiveness is free to us. We we don't pay for his forgiveness. We don't pay for it with our morality, we don't pay for it with our religion. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, the scripture says, but it's by his mercy that he saved us. We we don't earn that. There's nothing that we do to keep it. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, and we can't do anything that would make him take that back. But if we've really received that kind of mercy and that kind of love, it does make us holy. And if it isn't making us holy, then we haven't received it. So anyone who talks like, yeah, you know, I've received Jesus, and so now I can just sort of sin it up and do whatever I want, because I've got faith, I've got my get-out-of-hell-free pass, and he's going to forgive me for everything I do, and I can just kind of have my fun, fun defined as, as sinning, that's someone who doesn't recognize and doesn't really know what it means to be redeemed by God. You know, sometimes we think, oh, man, but if we, if we teach that his grace is free that will make people unholy. In fact, the old Heidelberg Catechism asked that question. They said, but does not this doctrine make men careless and profane? But the answer was, by no means. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. If we actually have faith in Jesus, that can't not transform us. They can't not make us more holy. He frees us from our sin so that we can serve Him in holiness and in righteousness. He makes us different people when we come to believe. Now, there can be a temptation to say, well, let's not teach that the grace of God is free. Let's teach that we have to earn it so that people don't get all cavalier and just start doing whatever they want because we could really abuse that idea that we are forgiven for free, that that all we have to do is turn and believe in Jesus um, without without fixing our own lives, that we trust him to forgive us, we trust him to take away the guilt of all of our sin. If we teach that he does those things, then that's going to free us up to just sin it up and do whatever we want. But the thing is, when we really grasp that truth of what he's done for us, It is always transformative. So a better strategy than not preaching that would actually be to double down on it and to preach it more. Because our problem is not that we believe too much that God's grace is free. Our problem is that we don't believe it enough. So look how he concludes here. Verse 76, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. (laughs) So he's finally talking to John here. And he says, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So he says, John came to point to Jesus who would give the forgiveness of sins. Not because we worked for it, but because of the tender mercy of God. And if you're here today as a Christian, let me just remind you of the treasure you have. You have, as a Christian, total, free, permanent forgiveness of sins. When scripture says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, it means that. So that means that whatever sins you bring in here, whether they're sins that you committed before your conversion or sins you committed after, whether you've committed them a thousand times or you've only committed them once, whether in your mind they're really egregious and really shocking or they're relatively small, they've been completely forgiven by the blood of Christ. I mean, soak that in. All of your fears, all of your apathy. All of your doubt, all of your lust, all of your addiction, that adultery, that divorce, all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your rebellion, all of your wandering, it was all paid for by Jesus Christ. And if you have received him by faith... God has removed those sins as far from you as the east is from the west. And now you might still see some of the effects of that sin in your life. You may still see the lingering addiction and lingering regrets and the lingering feeling of shame. There might still be broken relationships. There might be people who are slow to trust you. There may still be some insecurities. But none of those things are the evidence that God hasn't forgiven you. Whatever you think the worst part about you is, the truth is it's worse than you think. And if you have by faith laid hold of Christ, it is really totally forgiven. Jesus really paid for it on Calvary. God truly and totally forgives, and that is such good news. And if we really believe that, that can't not transform us. Also, I think really believing in that forgiveness of God gives us an opportunity to be a real testimony to Christ in a world around us that is flailing around trying to find some way to get justice without forgiveness, but nobody can stand. I don't know if you've noticed this moment that we're in 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 the culture where where one by one people will come and they'll be the big moral warriors who point fingers at other people and talk about how bad they are, but then that person's baggage comes up. And someone finds the old pictures or the old tweets or the old stories and, and one by one every moral crusader has their baggage exposed and their histories brought up to condemn them and one by one they fall. We think that we're, we're getting justice, but we're all just throwing stones from our glass houses, and there's just like no remedy that people can see for any of their past sins. We're watching people destroy one another and be destroyed by one another, and if someone is, is in a camp that we consider to be our enemy camp, no confession and repentance will ever be enough. We want blood. And as Christians, we believe that blood has been shed. That yeah, it's absolutely true that we're all guilty, It's true that if all of us were to dump all of our baggage up here on the stage, we'd all be mortified. None of us could stand. But we believe that the blood of Jesus takes away our sin. That I'm actually more guilty than anyone could ever imagine, but Jesus paid it all. That when Jesus died on that cross, he was absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve so that we could be forgiven. When Jesus died on that cross, he was giving us his righteousness. He was transferring it to our account, if we'll believe in him, so that we could be really clean. And what a powerful testimony it would be to the world around us if we became people who so grasped the forgiveness of God that we have that we radically forgave one another. That we were able to apply the blood of Jesus as the real remedy for for the sins that we all have in our past, so that we could be loved and accepted by one another. What kind of bright and shining light would that be in the culture if we really believed in this kind of forgiveness? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our past, all the things that we regret the most deeply. Our forgiveness is that complete. And so that's why we sing. And maybe you say, yeah, this sounds so good, but I don't believe that it's mine today. That you hear this and you say, that sounds so good and I want that. Well, the good news is that it's offered to you. That kind of complete forgiveness. But the way you receive it is not by earning it. it. It's by first admitting your need for forgiveness from a holy God. By admitting the truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that that includes you and that your guilt is real, your sin is real. But then you you have to realize that you can't fix it. You can't solve it. That God didn't give you steps to follow so you could work your way back to him. He had to do something far more radical than that. He had to visit. He had to show up to redeem. And so God came and dwelt among us and lived a perfect life. And then died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. He was buried and he rose again. And if you'll turn from whatever was driving you, you'll turn from the other gods, the other ultimates. If you'll turn from being your own Lord and master of your life and turn to Jesus. If you'll believe in what he did for you on that cross and you'll turn and receive that by faith, he'll forgive you and forgive you completely and take your sins as far away as the east is from the west. It's a real offer that can be yours if you'll just receive him by faith. So that's good news. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Your love for us is changeless and unending. But we confess that our joy in you is weak and flickering and variable. Your love is like a mighty ocean that rushes toward us every day and envelops us with kindness and mercy and steadfast faithfulness. But our joy in you is like a fleeting mist that evaporates real quickly when we run into life's pain and suffering. So, Father, forgive us for loving so many other gods and for giving our lives to them. Forgive us for doing that while failing to notice your hand of love at work for us every day. We know that you govern the entire universe. We know that you work all things together for our good. But we confess that we're quick to accuse you to turn away from you and to give our worship and love to other gods and other ultimates so Lord forgive us for our sins but Jesus thank you thank you for your changeless and unending love thank you that you loved us before the foundation of the world and then you visited us you entered into history in order to to purchase and redeem us thank you that you loved your father perfectly You loved your neighbor perfectly. You kept every one of God's statutes and commands, and you did this in part because you knew that we never could, and that you had to transfer to us that gift of your perfect righteousness. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us with joy. Fill us with joy and with gratitude for the love that we have in Christ that won't ever let us go. Though our sins are are many and that they increase every day, we we lift up our heads and, and we ask that you would show us again the cross. We thank you that your love is relentless and that in faithfulness you pursue us and draw us back to you time and time again. Show us today in our hearts again the beauty of Jesus. Show us his wounds that paid our ransom Show us his faithful obedience that makes us perfect in him. Help us to love and cherish him in growing obedience until we bow before him on that last day and we start to sing his praises for all eternity. While we wait, fill us with joy now. Help our praise to be real, help our joy to be real, and help us to realize the, the great treasure that we have in Christ. Don't, don't allow the, the gospel to become commonplace to any of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and worship him together.